Brett, you know what I'm sipping on? It looks like a Diet Coke. It looks like a Diet ice. Coke, but looks are deceiving. See? Is it cold brew? I didn't go. No, definitely not. I didn't go. I know that's what you're drinking. Because I was like, I mean, I like you on Red Bull. I've never seen you on cold brew. No, so I typically need a Red Bull, but... As I am not in my usual location, I didn't have time to go get myself a Red Bull. So uh-huh. I was like, oh, I'll just have a Diet Coke with lemon. But I pour the Diet Coke. It's flat. No. So I add seltzer to it. So I'm actually having a soda and soda. Ooh, you're having like a Diet Coke tonic. Yeah. A Coke and soda. It's like LaCroix makes a, it's in the skinny can, but they make a cola flavored LaCroix. I feel like that's what you're having, basically. I love, you know what I love? And I don't want to promote anyone for free on this podcast. Ever, no. But there is a cola brand I like that's new. Okay. Should I tell you? Are you a starry girl? Is that what it's called? No, Olipop. Oh, I love their vintage yeah, cola. Great. Also, I'm trying out these new blue light glasses. I used to be a glasses girl. But they're cute. Until I got... I like the clear frame. Right? They they were going to go in the yeah. garbage. My mom or dad got them as a promotion. And by dad, I mean my stepfather. My <laughs> but um, I feel like I always have to qualify. Um, But they were going to throw these in the trash. I was like, I'll give them a go. I haven't had glasses yeah, since... My LASIK eye surgery. I used to have... I'm LASIK. Yeah. I mean, you should be. I mean, terrifying. I'm like, the same laser that you expect me to have a tattoo removed with, you want to have me allow you to point it at my retina, mama? You definitely I mean, want sure, like I, someone with I trust good the reviews. Robot, but, uh... I mean, I just I just got new glasses. I mean, they're not here yet, but I just got new glasses, and I got like irrationally excited by it. I mean, I just turned thirty five. I had a birthday a couple days ago. Happy belated! Thank you so much. And uh, that's how I know I'm like like one foot in the grave. I'm like, oh god, I just got excited about glasses. I miss having glasses. I looked so cunt in glasses, and then I got LASIK, oh, and now I feel like baby, wait, wait for the Bretatron like two point five coming in like a week i can't wait what are, are they clear frames are they tortoise shell where are we what are we talking wireframe no, i've got it so we've got a day and a night pair but also the night pair can also be a day pair so we've got Smart. a very thin chrome wireframe aviator ooh, for daytime. Ooh. and then for nighttime a very because like my face isn't really wide but wide glasses look better on my face when they're like kind of oversized so i got this very chunky kind of squared off pair of just like black rim glasses like pretty thick like all ooh. the frames and those mama if i wear those in the daytime and i step outside baby they transition to an olive green sunglass oh my god a transition lens Period. a cute transition yeah. lens because i a cute olive green not just just, Not like, I don't like transitions, yeah. but a green one. Did you meet me when I had transition lenses? No, I've never known you with eyewear. Oh my God. I guess you met me like right after I got LASIK then because I got LASIK while I was living in LA, but I used to have a pair of transition lenses because it was covered by insurance at the time, the insurance uh-huh. that I had. and Vision insurance, imagine. Imagine. That was when I was on my mom's insurance, but it was so nerdy. But like the glasses were also so cunty. They were like a cat eye glass that also had a transition lens. So it was just like this weird kind of clash of like style. But I I like to credit myself with kind of making it cool. Saying, I don't care. 
Yeah. What's been going on? How are things over at the Radar Peak East Coast, East Coast headquarters? Headquarters. They're good. They're good. You know. Are you guys buried in snow? There's all these like weather warning. I mean, not for California, but basically everybody east of California is, it, is like, I guess. Is it still battening down the hatches? I, I mean, it's right now. There's no snow on the ground. No ice. Like it snowed like a foot, and then it rained it all away, which I think is like kind of the best of all worlds. You don't want to be like stuck yeah. with the snow after. But I love the snow, but not like the aftermath of the Being snow. Being stuck with the snow after, I feel like, is the same as like having the smell of ketchup on your fingers after having McDonald's fresh oh, fries. Nobody wants that. That is a perfect analogy, actually. You know, it's like I want it while I want it. But as soon as I'm done, baby, get it the fuck away from me. Fully, fully agree. I mean, Emily and I have a joke that's like whenever someone has to cut, like because we cook a lot. Wait, sorry. Who is Emily? My girlfriend. I feel like that's how you always have to introduce Emily. Also, <laughs> Stephen, my dad, actually, my stepdad, <laughs> Emily, my, my girlfriend. Emily uh, and I always kind of draw straws, you could say, metaphorically, for who has to be garlic girl when it comes to cutting Ooh. garlic. Emily, much respect. Wait. She puts on gloves every time. I mean, gloves, yeah, but like, d- does nobody know about the stainless steel trick? No, we do, but it's just like, it gets under Who the nail. Like, less the stainless steel bowl after you're done playing with garlic. I- honestly, I need to like start doing it. Like, I feel like I don't buy yeah. it, so I don't do it. Like, I don't believe mm-hmm. that that works. But it does, right? Yeah, I mean, they make like a, a bar of, it looks like a bar of soap, but it's just stainless. It's supposed to like take scents away. But I just like use a stainless like mixing bowl. That, that works just as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, then I have to like run the bowl through the dishwasher because I've manhandled it. But like, seems fine. Funny story. By the way, mommy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it works. Oh, by the way, mommy. <laughs> by the way, okay. mommy. Uh, last time Emily was here in Connecticut with my family um uh-huh. we went and she met my grandma Fun. who she actually has met but like prior to our relationship and yeah like out of context my grandma's notorious for like really having no filter and like like when i had a nose ring my grandma would always be like such a shame Sashanda, really which is I can hear the a, disappointment. A generational shame. Ashonda is a shame Ugh. that transcends multiple generations. <laughs> By your actions, you have added to her generational trauma. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like but like she doesn't it's not reserved for just me or her own kin. You know, she'll say right. what she thinks of just about anyone. Um, which Kinda can be that. funny, but also unhinged. And I was nervous that like, oh, she was going to like judge Emily for having like piercings and tattoos where I definitely try Uh to like hide mine when I'm around her just because I don't want to be subject to the fucking criticism. Not because I actually like care, but I just like would rather not. And sparing the interaction. Truly. And so anyways, we walk into my grandma's lovely apartment and my grandma's like, oh, good. Two witnesses. I need you guys to sign this. And both of us have to sign her do not resuscitate. <laughs> oh my god. That's amazing. I was like, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know? Damn. I know. I was like, she does not wanna she doesn't wanna fight for her life. Here, sign my DNR. If it's my time, it is my time. I'm not gonna fight with time. She needed two witnesses. She's like, you two will do. Damn. What an introduction. What an intro. My God. That's my by the way, mommy. Do you think you'd want a DNR? I've never thought about it. I know. It uh you know what? 
at that point in my life when I'm like over the age of 80 and I'm a widow. But it feels like something that we should probably have drawn up like now. Because like what if something happens to, you know, I'm like, I don't have any of that stuff. So I'm like, if something, you know, knock on all the wood, but like happened to me, I'm like, I don't have any. I've, I've got like a will, but like I don't have like a, a DNR or anything. So I'm like, oh, God, like, don't let me be Terry Shavo. Oh, my God, Terry Shavo. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I would definitely trust my loved ones to like pull the plug if I'm like in a vegetable state. That's the thing, though. Her husband was like trying to honor her wishes to like not stay connected. And then her parents got involved and turned it into like right. a national media circus and like for their own sort of like motivations kept her on life support for how, you know, however long that was before There's, she finally have passed. Ever seen... And I'm like, God, that's like my worst nightmare to be like locked in my body, maybe not even conscious, but like somebody won't just let me go. <laughs> I'm like, that is terrifying to me. I know. Have you ever seen that South Park episode where they staged nope. Terry Shivo the musical? <laughs> oh, my God. What? It's fucked. Only South Park. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but like, that's still, that's pretty shocking. It's, yeah. That's, anyway. Enough of that. Enough of that. Well, oh, yeah. And then today I just got in the weeds, not even deep in the weeds, just like, honestly, a gentle walk down a stone path. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sure. toward the weeds um about like in vitro fertilization because i'm like well what if emily and i did want to have it because my mom was like let me get one thing straight with you you have to have a baby <laughs> like verbatim can't not and i was like oh well we'll see it depends you know and it's like you know for for me and emily like that's not like a cheap decision or sure, yeah. a mistake I mean, really anything, anything ivf or like fertility related i feel like it's just like so exorbitantly expensive and i was even looking like if you already know who you want your sperm donor to be like does that make any difference sure, yeah. and actually no like they're equally expensive and you have to like have obviously like legal contracts like written out and then i was looking into that technology we talked about in season one where they are it's like um something gamete gametosis gamete where it's like you can take two of the same cell but like effectively turn one into the opposite type thing well you can take any stem cell and create like a reproductive cell so you can yeah, create it. eggs you can create sperm and but they said that that technology is not going to be available for like even fda approval for like probably another 10 years damn so I don't know. But that also means like, you know, your biological clock doesn't have to tick so fast if you have that option at all times. Like if you don't need it's to true. save your eggs, you can just make an egg. It's true. I forget who it was this past week I saw on the news. There's some, he might be an athlete. He might be a musician. I forget. But like he, he's, his daughter, I think is like 20 or 21 or something. And she was just like announced publicly to be battling, I think like brain cancer or something. So like at 20, 21, she like proactively froze enough eggs so that like basically her body won't be like completely wrecked from the cancer treatment like preemptively sort of like getting ahead of it rather than like you know getting to the end of treatment and realizing that like oh maybe you lost like a certain percentage of viability or like you know however that would work but yeah that was something similar in the news this week it's like it all seems wild playing god and creating life well glad we're able to yeah it's wild to me well you can for the low 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 starting price of sixteen thousand dollars it starts at sixteen thousand. yeah and then i looked up if insurance covers it and it was like no 
So, I'm sure not. So it's like, what the fuck? You take out a loan or you have the money. Wait, so 16000 that like would effectively get you like one, one round at like an embryo or whatever. One round like of trying to make in vitro happen. fertilization. I don't know what is included yeah. in that package. It would be funny to like see the packages that they offer. And it's obviously like you're not just going to want to try once like because it's obviously like you want to, I guess, maximize your potential. So if it's like $16,000 a pop, it's like, you know. Any number of things could go wrong in the development of an embryo. So I'm like, how many times on average, I wonder, do people have to go through like those types of treatments before, you know, like I wonder what the average is before yeah. there's like, success. Yeah, right. Because it's like you retreat, like you do the fucking like egg retrieval and then you've got like a certain number there and then they fertilize them and they see like how many viable embryos come out of the fertilization then maybe you have like three or four or five and then they can freeze those but like you know i i don't know i am very like mm, i'll re so like basically after i saw the number sixteen thousand dollars i was like and we're done looking this up and then i wonder i'm like once you freeze the embryos that i guess they've identified are like viable or potentially viable then what happens do you have to pay rent on them monthly like they're in public storage yes for them to keep them frozen for you you do actually yeah the ones that you're not using and then the other one they'll take a syringe and directly plant it in your uterus sure but i'm like you would think with that price that like the storage would be included they're like no that's additional I don't know. I didn't look at the actual packages. Oh, like maybe like maybe their starter package, you know, doesn't include any storage or maybe it includes one year of storage. And then, mm. you know, they're they've got their gold level, which. Hello. Yes. Hi. I would like to sign up for the Fertility Plus. <laughs> exactly. No. And you're getting like Squarespace style. Like, well, if you pay monthly or if you pay annually, you'll get 15 percent off with a camera live view inside the freezer to watch your little still frozen baby waiting for its time to thaw. Do you want auto renew? <laughs> would you like to sign up for paperless? Obviously. Yes to both. Anyway, that's my bummer of the not summer. Man. I don't know. I was going to say it's kind of like appropriate that we're starting today thinking about just like, I don't know, like the general theme of existentialism. Because like yeah. today, future we're going to be finishing. Generation. Yeah. I mean, like today we're finishing the chapter that we've been sort of like working through in part two that's called The Spell. And I didn't read any of your portions. So like I have none of the like, you know, context leading up to where I start today. But like from where I'm coming baby we're approaching like not quite existential event horizon but like we're getting pretty close i feel like i'm so excited i also did not read your section was which was difficult because where my section ends it's on such a fucking cliffhanger and it's crazy i mean we haven't seen chapters in this book for quite some time and this week yeah. we are Finishing up the chapter we started last week. Just feels good. Something something mm -hmm. about knowing... Ch people love checkpoints. I'll also tell you, because I'm reading this book digitally from my iPad. So the iPad's telling me that after today's episode, we are 40% of the way through the Dark Forest. So I can't believe it. Too bad. I'm proud of us. Yeah, it's it looks wild. like that in my book. Oh, yeah, it does. That's um, what 40% looks like. That sure is. Well, all right, Brett, I don't really have anything more to say. I, I'm ready to go. Me either. Other than the fact, on January 12th, just like a couple weeks ago, there was another hearing Your on Capitol Hill on my birthday 
There was another hearing on Capitol Hill. This one took place in a skiff, which is the secure <gasps> conference room. Oh, you know, I'm obsessed with skiffs. Wherein skips. members of the House Oversight Committee received new information relating to the UAP alleged crash retrieval and reverse engineering program first put forward in the whistleblower hearing setting by David Grush. A lot of the lawmakers came out afterwards to say, you know, what they could granted it's in a secure setting so they weren't able to give like you know explicit updates but i thought it was interesting representative luna from the state of florida said someone asked you know like did you learn anything else about the validity of the claims you know that the u.s has and has been reverse engineering and also tracking down and then hiding alien craft for decades and she said i can't give you any details about that but you should listen specifically to the words that david grush chose to use on the hill david grush never said alien she said he said interdimensional and that's from the representative from florida saying listen to the literal words that david grush said in his hearing for a little more elucidation on what we learned in today's secure hearing so what i'm here to tell you now if you want to hear us talk about some of the ins and outs of what they learned we've just posted an episode on Patreon where we're talking about a conspiracy theory about the Black Knight satellite, but it relates to UAP, David Grush, and everything that's come up from the Hill. So if you want to hear that, head to our Patreon, patreon.com slash RadarPeak. It's there for all of our members. And that's all I have today for By the Way, Mom. That's honestly a little big if true and you know what? it is big if true. it's making me think i guess it's big if true mommy big if true i like that new segment actually but you know what's making me think are the trisolarans technically interdimensional it's hard to say at this point okay so you you're saying like there may be more information that makes me think so their sophons are definitely interdimensional. Correct, right. So that's why I was thinking, like, not all NHIs are extraterrestrial, but all extraterrestrials are NHIs. Maybe. So I'm just wondering if they are both considered extraterrestrial and NHIs, if they're also considered interdimensional just because they have interdimensional science and technology. I don't know. I think the distinction that Representative Luna from Florida that she was trying to make was don't focus so much on these are Roswell well crash era like not to fall into the trap of thinking like these are martians or these are beings from a planet because she's not saying that they're not from earth david grush just alleged that the craft were made by intelligence that is non-human in nature and representative luna said listen to the specific words he said on the hill he never said alien craft he said interdimensional craft so it's like interesting so far nobody's making the claim anyway way that it sounds like that the beings that pilot and or may be responsible for creating these craft that we know to be uap like nobody's making the claim that they're not from earth it sounds like they're saying they're from earth just not in the fourth dimension of space time i'm gasping into the microphone <laughs> You know, because math tells us that mathematically there can be up to 11 or maybe I think it's 12 dimensions, you know, as things can go. Those dimensions are smaller and smaller and smaller. Like our fourth dimension of space and time is a pretty big macro dimension. But like nobody's saying that those dimensions don't exist right on top of us here around us. I'm glad you mentioned math, Brett, because that is going to bring us into the story today. Oh, should we dive in? Prepare to take off. You're listening to Radar Peak. 
a three-body podcast reviewing our way through the three-body problem and discussing its real-life parallels. I'm Allie. I'm Brett. And this week, we're finishing part two of The Dark Forest, The Spell. We've got trips to space, more PDC meetings. Oh, and for everyone's safety, we're going to go somewhere deep underground. Just don't get comfortable. You should know by now, you're not really safe anywhere. Energy unit reporting. All systems go. Cutting unit reporting. All systems go. Amplifier unit reporting. All systems go. Interference monitor unit reporting. With an acceptable range. Begin transmission. Good old Zhang Beihai uh-huh. is looking up at a, the massive body of a new space plane okay. named High Frontier. Okay. And he wonders if perhaps a few of the dismantled pieces, maybe some steel plates from the hull of the Tang. Yeah, I was kind of wondering. I was like, R.I.P. Tongue. Maybe just a screw or a something made its way onto the High Frontier. Okay. High Frontier is a space plane, one of four in operation that takes off from a runway, just like a normal plane, flies to the top layer of the atmosphere before rockets are turned on for space flight, and then it enters orbit. Interesting. We find out that many more like this are now under construction, and they would soon begin building the good old space elevator, as seen in in Willy Wonka. Man, Wong Meow, like... It might be long gone, but that vision is like has its claws in there, I feel like. I know. I wonder if they're using his nanotech. Not no. Wasn't that the plan to like have the cables made of his nanotech right. to have it be like super light? That makes sense. But also like mega strong. He lives on in the construction. Yeah. Zhang Beihai talks to Chang Wei-si, the general. Uh-huh. And Zhang Beihai is like, sometimes I thought we'd never get to space. And Chang is like, I mean, are there naval officers who never make it to sea? And he's kind of saying it as like a rhetorical question. Yeah. But then Jing Beihai is like, yeah, actually, there's lots of them. I mean, some <laughs> people, like, I, I, I know. some people in the Navy seek exactly that. I mean, I think of my dad. He was in the army and his whole goal was to never go to war, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And he he did it. I get it. And Zhang Beihai is like, it's a shame it's not for a more specific mission. And Chang is like, experience is a mission in and of itself. And it's funny, I was okay. just talking to Emily about this, about how much I fucking hate not having a destination. Like, mm-hmm. when it comes to off-roading, which Emily loves, and which... Also, I realized while I was in Hawaii and we were off-roading and I was kind of getting nauseous and like feeling like these bumps and the thumps and the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Uh-huh. Yep. I was like, oh my God, this feels like I'm boating. And uh, if you know uh-huh. anything about me, it's that I have inescapable boating trauma from my childhood. And so it's just like, I can't help but feel the like this like intrinsic like anxiety come up. Yeah. And something that used to absolutely drive me mad and would put me in a state of hysteria as a kid was when like my family would be like well we're going boating again for like the 500th time this week and Uh i'd be like where are we going and they'd be like we're just going boating no we're not going anywhere we're just going boating see i don't like that like even even like at 
around whatever i don't even know but like whatever age that was for you like even by then i had seen enough lifetime movies and i'm like i'm gonna wind up at the bottom of the lake or something like i'm just like i have to know where we're going otherwise i don't trust any of the plans oh yeah yeah yeah. i was like i don't i was just like why would we risk our lives for the sake of it like as if like risking your life is is just a leisurely activity it's like if the pioneers were like we're just gonna create a wagon train and starve to death but we're gonna go in a circle on purpose you know like i mean when you're living in america at the end of the millennium you know it's like the twilight zone so yes i feel that way about off-roading as well like i don't want to go off-roading unless we're like going to like a beautiful lookout or like a place to camp or uh, like whatever it is i don't need to just off-road to off-road like i don't want to just get nauseous the fun is not in the journey for me it it really isn't yeah and as emily and i always say we don't have to like all the same things (laughs) we don't like all the same things and that's okay and that's okay Anyway. anyway, basically, he's about, Zhang Beihai is about to go on a experience mission. Literally, they're just flying up to fly back down, cool. just testing okay. it out, keeping, keeping the planes warm. A lot of stress and radiation on the body just to find out some stuff. I mean, didn't, didn't Bezos just do it? Yeah. But only once. Then the boarding call was issued. And I'm thinking, like, we're now in, like, a galactic terminal or something. You know, like, it's giving, like, regular commercial flight. Yeah. The officers begin to climb the air stair to the plane. No one's in spacesuits, just, like, uniforms representing different parts of the military. Okay. And some people not even in uniforms. Like, truly as if flying on any regular plane. Okay, wild. And right before Zhang Beihai boards... Chang is like, oh, one more thing you should know. The CMC has studied the reports that you've put forward about sending political cadres into the future as reinforcements. Okay. But they've decided that the conditions are just still a little premature. And they have a little back and forth, basically, about whether or not, you know, Zhang Beihai really thinks, like, this is short-sighted on the part of the CMC. Like, we need to be adequately planning 400 years ahead. Yeah. And Chang is basically like, I know, I hear you, but let's be real. There's no one qualified enough to replace you or me here now if we were to hibernate 400 years. Oh, man. Ultimately, that's all that's exchanged. Zhang Beihai salutes Chang and he gets on the plane. He sits down in a window seat next to a civilian. There's no countdown or anything. High Frontier starts its engines. Seatbelt sign is turned on. And just like any ordinary plane, it starts zooming down the runway. And it's a much longer runway than your average commercial plane. Sure. And the time that it takes for it and the the sort of like weight that you have to get off the ground is much greater. So it's kind of like lumbering to get off the ground. But they get off the ground just like any other plane. And the captain comes over the PA and he's like, ding. Oh, this is a 38th flight of space of the plane High Frontier. Aviation phase has started and will last approximately 30 minutes. Please keep your seatbelts fastened for the duration of the flight. And uh, we'll have the flight attendants come around with some cocktails shortly. Thank you for flying High Frontier. Just kidding. There's no cocktails. But that is the vibe. Oh, boo. Caviar bumps? Anything? Boo, no. Literally just just some ant. So just some hyper gravitational stress. <laughs> so we're on Space Spirit Airlines. Yes. And so they're just like on the they're still in the regular portion of like the ascent toward uh-huh. the, you know, height of the atmosphere when the guy sitting next to him 
says, Not all that different from civil aviation, huh? And just then, Zhang Beihai recognizes his neighbor on the plane. He goes, Okay. Hey, you're Dr. Ding Yi, aren't you? No. Uh, get out. He's back. Flashback. Blast from the past. Sick. If you don't remember. What the hell is Ding Yi up to? Truly. And you're about to find out. Ding Yi, if you don't remember, was Dong Dong's ex-husband. Played that game of pool with Wang Miao. Yes. Has been pretty essential, you know, in the in the first book. Yeah. He's at the very end of the first book with Dashi and wing meow so ding is still around man okay keeps on talking and he's like you know the first time i didn't take my glasses off after the aviation phase and they crushed my nose with the weight of a brick oh god second time i took them off but they flew right off after gravity went away and it was not easy for me to get them back i'll tell you that ding That's some kind of g-force i know dingy continues we basically find out a few things you know he's okay. clearly been flying on these space planes a few times he's also flown on a space shuttle um which i guess is slightly different but they don't really get into that dingy is in charge of a controlled fusion project okay which isn't unheard of i feel like we kind of are trying to do that here and now right like Mm -hmm. kind of trying to harness the power of fusion to create energy versus fission Last week when Zhang Beihai and Zhang Weixi were in that sort of like situation room, you know, at that like screen model of the universe up on the IMAX screen. That's something he said to Zhang Weixi. He was like, uh, so uh, our cold fusion is like stalled. We're like making no progress. Or like he mentioned that like that was being worked on, but like they weren't really going anywhere meaningful with it yet. Well, Ding Yi isn't really getting places either. He's basically commiserating with Zhang Beihai. They're sharing in this frustration about how basically the CMC is limiting their research and the execution. They only want Ding Yi to focus on controlled fusion on the ground. And he's like, and it's all because the current aerospace industry is too powerful. And basically, they want to do it all themselves. So basically, like, organizations like NASA and whatever, like, other aerospace... I mean, NASA's governmental, but, like, SpaceX and... Just these, but it sounds like like the big oil sort of like exactly. dynamic, where like we have a technology that's better, but the powers that be are so big who are currently in existence that like there's no way we'll be able to like change this system from the bottom. Exactly, Dingy is like it's so ridiculous because traditional chemical rocketry is entirely different from today's aerospace tech. Like they mm. they are not even in the right realm of engineering. To be making groundbreaking leaps in technology like they need to. But he's like, but you know what they have? They've got the money to squeeze out the outsiders. So there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, preach, sister. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Captain comes on the PA. Now approaching altitude of 20,000 meters. Due to thinning atmosphere, sharp drop in altitude will produce momentary weightlessness. Please keep your seatbelts fastened. Dingy is also talking about how now he's working on recovering some cosmic ray catchers. I don't quite know what this is, but my understanding based on context is that it was a part of a space-based high energy physics research project. So you think like particle collider, like Mm -hmm. stuff that has to do with quantum physics. Yeah, got it. Okay. And the reason he has to recover some of these cosmic ray catchers is 
Because the project has been stopped. Not because of aerospace, but because of the Sophons. Uh, they know, blocking. yeah, there's no use in using any sort of like high energy particle collider or like even trying to work on this project. Humanity really only has a few reserves of theory remaining. Damn. Classical physics, quantum mechanics, and the still embryonic string theory. How far they're going to be able to apply what we already have to like work with and work from is really, he says, up to destiny. And this becomes a big theme in this little section is like fate and destiny. Like there, we have what we have and like whether or not we will be able to do something with it and what will happen as a result is in the hands of God, the universe, whatever, what have you, you know, that's stressful. I mean, it's a reality that, like, we face as it relates to, like, our own types of, like, energy sources, but it's, like, it's stressful reading it on paper because it almost, like, gives more context to, like, the actual reality that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Also, like... Paints kind of a bleaker picture. Also, it's funny because I feel like often I'll, like, interchangeably use the word universe and like god Mm. and whatever but here you're gonna see also in their dialogue that like you actually can't use them interchangeably right because the universe contains sophons and sophons actually do have an agenda that is not actually random or unprogrammed you know or like unknowable like the sophons being these like particles in the universe like you act like they they actually are deterministic right they are being controlled and being used for control so the question is really like not so much is the universe the question is not so much how far can we apply them according to like the universe but like really like we know the universe is fighting against us and uh, it, it would it's really like if there is a god or like something above these sophons that is going to somehow lead us to inspiration and discovery that is like strong enough and you know just perfect enough to fight the circumstances with which they are faced it's kind of like the jasmine sullivan song if there really is a god why would he do this to me is that a song jasmine sullivan sing it we don't have the clearance okay the plane reaches 30,000 meters which means they are at the top of the atmosphere. Yeah, like whisper thin, just a little higher, and you're in space, baby. And they see the sun. Captain comes back on the PA, and he's like, space fight phase is about to begin. Please adjust your seats according to the illustration on the seat back in front of you to minimize discomfort of hypergravitation. They don't say, like, how to do this, considering there's so much detail in this book. Like, they don't even mention yeah. you, like, what position that is. I imagine it's, like, a gentle recline. Yeah, like... If not fully at, like, approaching flat, yeah, maybe. Right? That sounds comfortable yeah. to me. Yeah. Like, I guess distribution of gravity. I like to be flat. Yep. Horizontal, the best. And at that point, a countdown begins to the initiation of the aerospace engine ignition. Like, leaving okay. aircraft engine, entering aerospace engine. Edge of my seat. Huge blast. As if the entire sky outside is screaming. Hypergravity is described as a giant slowly tightening its fist. I was like, ooh, yeah. Oh, shit. Zhang Beihai, like, he's like, he like. I kind of need that, I think. I think that would feel really good. Yeah, like, I, on the I spine. often fantasize about being run through a human sized pasta roller because I think it would feel so mm, great. On the back, yeah. Crack me head to toe. Need you know what I mean? It. I agree. I would hope. Zhang Beihai twists his head with effort to just look out the window. 
and he sees it's like that toy at the county fair where you're like glued to the wall yeah yeah the gravitron yeah and he sees flames spurting out the engine i'm like uh-oh this is right five minutes later the boosters detach the main engine cuts and high frontier enters orbit cool he says it feels like his body and the plane are no longer even connected because the gravity that united them is gone and in fact, yeah, now they are just these two things that are flying in parallel paths through space. Damn. He looks out the window. He's never seen a star field so bright. He can just make out the shapes of continents over the earth. Okay. And in his heart, he says, Dad, I've taken the first step. In memoriam. In- Rest in peace. Yeah, at the end of that episode, there's an in memoriam to Zhang Beihai's dad. Should we do a little in memoriam right now for Zhang's dad? Yeah. Okay, cue it. That was sweet. So sweet. Never forget. Never forget. Shang Bei Hai, I think, is really making his dad proud. I think so. In that quiet way. Not that his dad would ever tell him. No, but, but yeah. he knew. Okay, so then we hop on over to General Fitzroy. Ooh, new scene. Yes. General Fitzroy, he's been thinking about that brush shape of the Trisolaran fleet for the last four years. I mean, can you blame him? That's like some of the most like groundbreaking, I think, like visual evidence that they've come by to this point. Yeah. He cannot wait to see them again. And the next chance he's going to have to see them again is actually, well, he thinks is going to be today because... The reason they were able to see them four years ago was because the Trisolaran fleet was passing through an interstellar dust cloud, which creates this wake of light, and that is what they saw. Otherwise, like, how could you see them? There's no light in space. They call these little interstellar dust clouds snow patches, and the Trisolaran fleet is slated to pass through five of them in total on their way to Earth. Got it. Love a mile marker. We love. So... Fitzroy's like, all right, if they're maintaining a constant acceleration over the last five years, they'd have passed through the second snow patch today. So Fitzroy runs to Hubble to Space Telescope Control Center, and he's like a kid who wants to open his Christmas presents early. And the guy who's working there laughs. He's like, Fitzroy, we've forgotten. Light reflected from Trisolarian's passage through the snow won't reach Earth for another four years because it's going to take that light. Four years to get here. Damn. So like the best that any of these people are going to be able to do is after the fact, see if they were where they were supposed to be, quote unquote, on time. Four years ago. Damn. Okay. Okay. Fitzroy's embarrassed. He's like, right. Shit. Fuck. Sorry. I just, I just really wanted to see them again. To quote Interstellar, specifically Anne Hathaway crying like she did in Les Mis. But you knew about relativity. <laughs> Can you hear the people sing? Fitzroy's like, I just, if we could, if we could measure their speed and their acceleration, you know, that would be really important. And the scientist who's sitting there, he's like, Fitzroy, I'm sorry. We're outside of the light cone. Damn. You know what the light cone is? Well, yes, but tell me in context and also tell our listeners. Well, I want to hear what you, what your understanding of it is. My understanding is an extremely basic one, but I understand it to be, and tell me how, like, 
close I am. It's all about like relative positioning of like where you are versus where the light's coming from, like whether or not it's pointed in your general direction, right? To be able to see it. And they're physically, the Milky Way now has moved because everything in space is moving and they're outside of the viewing angle. Exactly. Exactly. Great. I mean, think about like a light bulb, you know, when it casts light, it creates this like conical Mm -hmm. shape of light, right? Away from the point, Exactly. And eventually you reach outside of that light's cone. Think like a street lamp shining down on the sidewalk. Yeah. Look at any light in your house and and you'll see, you know, the penumbra. That info was like deep deep in my astronomical brain. I knew knew you could access it. I'm impressed. That's like me doing the crossword where I'm like, oh, wait, I think Rabat is the name of a city. Like, (laughs) Right. Yeah. And you're correct. (laughs) No, and I am correct. And it's like, wow, like that is like the kind of things that you just absorb passively and never think of until you're doing your crossword. Like the room of requirement. It shows up when you need it kind of thing. Exactly. Wait, the what requirement? The room of requirement. It's a Harry Potter. Oh, thing. got it. There's this like there's this room that only shows itself when like a student really, really needs Oh, that's cool. A place that like doesn't exist already, then this door appears on a wall and it's like, here you go. Actually the Harry there was a Harry Potter clue in the crossword the other day and I had no idea what the oh. answer was. And should have called me. I really should have phoned a friend. It was the clue was a law enforcer in the Harry Potter universe. An aura. And that is exactly what the answer was. You really know. A U R O R. Yep. Yeah. I had to figure it out the hard way. Damn. <sighs> Next time I know for all my Harry Potter. Honestly, us doing the crossword together would be we'd be unstoppable. Uh talk about like world record lowest time. You should do it. Maybe. I know. I need to get a subscription. I just, I always refuse. I play the mini, but like that's only four clues usually. I I just want you to know I'm on a 25 day streak of getting, like, I mean, getting it within the, like, I don't count it as a streak unless you get it the day of, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and my mom and Steven, well, my mom hardly plays, but my stepdad, he is a fucking whiz. I mean, and he, we all take screenshots of our time when we finish and he does like the Saturday in like 10 minutes and I'm doing it in like an hour and a half. That's like sprinting like the New York marathon. I exactly like I kind of like I'm like, don't you want to enjoy it? Like I like taking my time, you know, otherwise he's like, I enjoy it by finishing. Yeah, it. no, he really does. Then he moves on to Sudoku. Anyway, the light cone. So it's the cone shape that light emanates along the time axis uh-huh. in space. It's impossible, and this always makes my mind kind of break a little bit, like the time axis, because I understand the space axis, but the time axis, I kind of have to break my brain a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you think it matters that I understand this or like that our listeners understand the time axis in this moment? Yes slash no. I feel like it's generally it's most important, I feel like, to understand that like... You, say for example you want to like locate like s- say we're out as humans like on some kind of a space exploration and like another galaxy or something and now we're done and we're like okay now we have to navigate back to earth so that we can return for whatever it's not enough to say where is earth you have to say where is earth when we get right. there so it's like the converging point of that's why i always like make the point to say like when 
we obviously exist in three dimensions, but it's really four because time is its own dimension. Because like I could say to you, let's meet at Starbucks on the corner of 51st and 2nd. And if I go as soon as I text you, but you don't go until tomorrow, then we're at the same place, but at different times. Right. So it's like all of our location spatial awareness has to be placed in relation to the time of the place. Space gets a little more complicated because here that Starbucks on 52nd and 2nd or whatever is going to be there Sunday to Sunday. You know, like it's always there unless they close or go out of business. But in space... That makes perfect sense. That Starbucks is moving every single microsecond. Right. Right. That, that's a perfect explanation. Kind of is how I think about it. So it's impossible for people who are outside the cone to comprehend events that are taking place inside the cone. Makes sense. I mean... We can't see them. The scientist goes on. He's like, think about it. Who knows how many events in the universe are flying toward us right now at the speed of light? Some of them traveling for hundreds of millions of years. But because we're outside of the light cones of those events, they'll never get to us. Yeah, things could relatively sneak up behind you, as it were. Right. Could they? Apophis, where are you at? He says, fate lies within the light cone. It makes sense, right? Like, what is not in the light cone is not going to affect you. It's literally going to fly past you as if it never even existed. The only thing that can see Mm -hmm. events inside the light cone, outside of the light cone, are sophons. Yep. And thus, sophons have changed fate. What is theoretically possible to affect us in the light cone and to reach us has been utterly changed by Sophons. Yeah. Fitzroy turns back to the image processing terminal and he thinks of an engineer who five years ago had started to cry out at the sight of the brush and he suffered a deep depression so bad that he became utterly useless and was ultimately let go from his job. Sad. No one ever knows what happened to him. And the final line of the scene is, fortunately, there weren't many people like him. Okay. Okay. So are we celebrating that he's the outlier for still sort of like, I guess, maintaining like a connection to his humanity that it like shook him? I don't know. And like we hear we prefer people who are a little more maybe sociopathic and able to like just just compartmentalize, you know, like dissociate from those feelings. Yeah. To still be able to like do their job. I mean, not know. And also, but I thought it was like a strange contrast to like what Jing Beihai has been saying all along, which is that like there's a nihilism afoot mm-hmm. and rampant and which feeds defeatism. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that man didn't he, you know, I don't know. I would think that that man had like a moment of nihilism, like was like was like broken, had like a whole ego yeah. death, and and realized that like they're fucked, and then descended into de- depression of nihilism. I yeah. think. I mean, so I don't know. know. I mean, I feel like that's probably you know, especially when it's like concepts like you know, in in four hundred years, an extraterrestrial species is going to arrive at Earth for the sole purpose of eradicating humanity on the planet, so that they can have the planet as a new home or whatever. It's like no matter, I guess, how outlandish or like viscerally threatening a hypothetical is at the end of the day, it is still a hypothetical, but it's like only until they saw the brush in space. So it's like maybe with the realization that like, oh, this isn't hypothetical actually anymore and it actually never was. Now we just know why it's real or true or like inevitable or whatever. You know, maybe that's just how some people are going to react. I just think it's weird because of how much time was spent saying that the Nile is rampant you know like yeah but maybe it's ever since the wall facer project there's been like a renewed sense of hope 
Maybe, but these wall facer plans are getting broken left and right, oh, it feels like. 100%. Get ready. No matter how hard they try, they keep breaking walls beside and I can't break through. There's no talking to you. I'm so sad that they're coming. It takes time to travel across space-time. After all is said and done, we'll be the hopeless ones. Oh, do you believe you can defeat Trisolaris? <laughs> Wait, did you, were you just improving all of that or had you pre-written that? I improv that. That's amazing. Thank you. Like I'm actually sh- Wait, shocked. really? Truly. I, as I was singing it, I was like, wait, this song actually like really works for this yeah, particular like, subject. That's why I was like, you prepped this? No, it just came to me. <laughs> From a sofon. I, I honestly believe we are surrounded by sofons. I mean, what we know about sofons in the book, how they can, you know, if they unfold, they become like very, very, very big in our three, four dimensions i'm just like you know there's all these videos of uap and stuff of like the jellyfish uap that new one the chandelier uap that new one how it they seem to sort of like change forms i'm like these are so funs i agree hello hello so funs are you listening is the so fun in the room with us now numbers 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 in my eye Hop on over to Luoji. New scene. It is cold in Scandinavia or wherever he is. Okay. And I don't mean that just in the metaphorical sense. I mean, the lake has frozen over. There's snow everywhere. It's completely desolate and still and cold where he is. Okay. He's also missing his wife, Yan Yan, and his mm-hmm. baby, Xia Xia. They have been cryogenically frozen into hibernation until... 400 years from now. That's so fucked up. Still, it's so fucked up. And he's just on the heels of being visited by General Say, who has told him he needs to wall break himself and figure out... Oh, from the United Nations. Yes. And his job, if he ever wants to, like, see... I mean, he he can see his wife and kid again, but if he he wants to see them and be a fucking hero, Mm -hmm. he needs to figure out why Trisolaris wants him dead. Break the wall. Break the wall. Not build. Break. Break. And as, oh no! Wait, he's facing. I take it all back. Well, no, he needs to Carry break. On. He needs to break his own. Remember, there's a wall breaker for oh, that's everyone. What she told him. Yes, 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 yes. There's a wall breaker yes, yes. for everyone except for Luo G. He yes. has to become his own wall his breaker. Own. That's right. And no, that was actually also said by the members of the ETO when they were assigning wall breakers. Yeah, interest. It feels. Does it not feel like the entire world, good and bad, is like teaming up against Luo G at this point? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. I like can't tell why i mean why the eto would want him to wall break himself because then he would know but then i guess so would the sofans it feels like he's being set up to be like the ultimate fall guy no matter which side he falls sir you know what i mean like it just it feels like he's almost fighting a definitely uphill but like maybe almost losing battle here i know i can't can't quite figure out who it's gonna benefit in the end yeah for luo g to break his own face Okay. <laughs> Luo Ji is reflecting and thinking and contemplating. And as he's doing all of this mental, strenuous mental activity, uh-huh. he's 
certain that everything that has happened in his life all stemmed from that chance encounter with Ye Wenji nine years ago. I was like, wow, that was only nine years ago? He had never spoken to anyone about that conversation. So Hmm, no one knew about it except for him and the Sophons, a.k.a. Trisolaris. But what had she said? Here's what she said to him, if you forgot. She said, Luoji, suppose a vast number of civilizations are distributed throughout the universe. So many, it's on scale with the number of detectable stars. Lots and lots and lots of them. The mathematical structure of cosmic sociology is, in fact, far clearer than that of human sociology. Well, okay. And do I need to just define sociology for everyone so we're, like, on a... I'm just, like, I don't, you know... Maybe it's helpful, just for, like, a... textbook in black and white understanding sociology is the scientific and systematic study in humans of human of society human social behavior patterns of relationships and interaction it's basically the study of the development structure and functioning of human society cosmic sociology would be the study of the development structure and functioning of any society across space right like what is the common sociology between all civilizations in the universe got it yeah how do they function the same so she's saying the mathematical structure of cosmic sociology is in fact far clearer than that of human sociology because human sociology is not considered a science it's considered a humanities Uh Right. It's not something that is considered quantitative, though they try to I mean, there is a lot of quantitative data extrapolated from sociological studies. Sure. But but it's not a math. It's really an observation and inference based sort of attempt to systematize society to create systems out of what we observe. Right. Versus having a system like math to then explain everything, you know, and being able to look at something and be like, oh, and and this is the formula for that. So she goes on. Ye Wenji says, the mathematical structure of cosmic sociology is in fact far clearer than that of human sociology. The factors of chaos and randomness in the complex makeups of every civilized society in the universe gets filtered out by the immense distance. So those civilizations can act as reference points that are relatively easy to manipulate mathematically. Okay. So she's basically saying, like, there are so many civilizations in the universe, right, that all of the things that make them unique is actually negligible. And we can reduce them down to very simple reference points. Okay. It doesn't matter how they are different on like the specific sort of nuanced level. Okay. So she's like, keep it big picture. Look at where the circles on this diagram overlap. And that's where you'll get the majority of useful information, basically. Yes. She goes, first, survival is the number one need of civilization. Big picture. Seems fair. Yeah. Second, civilization continuously grows and expands. But the total matter in the universe remains constant. Okay. One more thing, Luoji. To derive a basic picture of cosmic sociology from these two simple axioms, you need two other important concepts. Chains of suspicion and technological explosion. Okay. But I'm afraid there won't be that opportunity. You might as well just forget I said anything. Either way, I fulfilled my duty. Bye! <laughs> right, so that was their conversation like in the in the graveyard that day, visiting Ye Wenji's daughter. Yes. Luoji's combing over these words over and over again. And honestly, hats off to him for remembering it so clearly. Honestly, yeah. And he's just he's just trying to understand why on earth 
would Tri Solaris want him dead? He knows it has to do with that conversation that he had with Ye-Wen-G. Uh-huh. Even though he never actually studied cosmic sociology. Okay. He never built out that research, which lends credence to what General Say said, right? That they wanted mm-hmm. to kill him completely inconspicuously because what he has, the knowledge that he has, is knowable by anybody else. Right. So they need him to die without having told anyone what he's thinking about. He focuses on the first two axioms. Survival is the primary need of civilization. Mm -hmm. And civilization continuously grows and expands, but the total matter in the universe remains constant. Okay. Is that true, by the way? So to quote new scientists, to do a little bit of fact checking on the question of like, oh, is that real the amount of energy slash matter in the universe is constant and derives from the big bang over time this becomes more and more spread out and less and less useful even though the actual amount doesn't change but it can change forms yeah like all the time like elements are being right. turned into different elements through like different nuclear processes inside stars like dust clouds are f- coalescing together to eventually form you know like planetary disks and you know from that then you get like collisions of planetary bodies which produce comets and asteroids you know all things like that so it makes sense that like the total matter in the universe isn't what's growing it's the physical space between all the matter that's growing like all the matter that exists is all the matter that was contained within the single two-dimensional point that existed before the big bang that we know as cosmic inflation so it's like that's that is kind of brain breaking this is to think about yeah it's definitely something i was thinking about in season one i don't know if we talked about it on air but like i was thinking about like okay if people like keep on having kids like do you ever run out of i don't know what you want to call it souls to inhabit like is there a finite number of consciousnesses or can you can just continue to have kids and they each be like somewhat unique and and i do think that is it's it's seemingly infinite and then i'm just thinking okay in this case i'm thinking about right like just population growth and expansion but matter and energy in the universe remaining constant and it's like we forget what a cosmic event it is when someone gives birth or like grows oh, yeah. a being because you're, they're literally taking like their energy, their food, that they, the energy from their food, you know. Fusing stardust together. Yes, the energy from their cells to then create matter. But you're not actually creating mm-hmm. matter. You're just converting energy to matter. But that matter is going to then contain energy that is going to have consciousness and, and is going to express itself through a human brain. And so, in fact, it's like you are creating more, but you're also actually completely sustainable you're just you're completing the cycle you're not creating more you're just creating something from something else yeah it's pretty wild yeah it also gets into the you know could go down the rabbit hole of like you know consciousness we still don't understand scientifically like is it an emergent property of matter is it something that is able to inhabit matter like are the two linked can they be separated like it's brings up a lot of really fun questions to think about your guess is as good as mine something for a t-shirt perhaps (laughs) just some major those do so well for us Okay, so he's thinking about those two axioms, and he's like, he believes that the answer is lying somewhere inside. Okay. But he's like, what could I possibly, what is what is there to possibly be gained from these two virtually self-evident clues? Like, these are not profound axioms. Yeah, right. 
I mean, yeah, definitely not reinventing any yeah, kind of survival is the primary need of civilization. The matter in the universe yeah. remains constant. Yeah. But he's like, all right, all right. Don't dismiss simplicity. Simple means solid. The entire world of mathematics was built from a foundation of irreducibly simple rock solid axioms. It's true. He looks around. Everything was ice cold. But the world still teemed with life. You know, there's a complex world out there brimming with oceans and land and sky and people and everything running according to a rule even simpler than the axioms of cosmic civilization, that being survival of the fittest. Now he sees his problem, and this is kind of what I've already said, but he sees... You know, Darwin had taken the boundlessness of the living world and come up with a rule to sum it all up. Luo Ji has to use the rules he knows to uncover a picture of cosmic civilization. Damn. So he's like doing the reverse of Darwin. Right. I have this rule. What does cosmic civilization therefore look like? I'm not envious of Luo Ji. <laughs> no. He's got a nice house, but it's not even his. He rents. Okay. <laughs> Luoji is sleeping during the day and thinking at night. He's looking up at the stars and just thinking, thinking, thinking. Thinking about what Ye Wenji said. The distance between the stars was hiding the very complex structure of each of them and just making them a collection of points in space with a very clear mathematical configuration, right? It was a very perplexing riddle. The entire galaxy an empty desert, yet a highly intelligent civilization happens to appear on the star nearest to us. Mm -hmm. This had to be an entry point. Two of Ye Wenji's concepts came into focus now. The other two. Okay. Chains of suspicion and technology yep. explosion. He felt close, but he kept getting distracted by everything going on around him. The stuff that math can't explain, right? Like right, yeah. the heater banging and like having to change the wood in the fire and like the things that need fixing and the things on the Just news. the life stuff. The life stuff. He needed absolute silence. He needed to be able to really see everything as pure, fundamental math. Okay. That is when everything feels clear. So he goes out and he decides to walk on the frozen lake. And he makes sure that it's, you know, hard enough and frozen enough to support him. Okay, because I was going to say, this sounds like a terrible I idea. I never walk on a frozen lake. And he walks out far enough so that he's finally surrounded by ice on all sides. And it's nighttime. And he's looking up. This man is crazy. Yeah. And he's looking up at the stars and he's got nothing but ice around him. And he finally feels like, you know, the ice extending beyond him infinitely in all directions is a simple flat world with nothing else going on. And all of okay. his cares vanish. All of his, you know, all the stimulus and perception, sensory perception enters a state of rest. And all he can perceive is the stars. Then with a crunch, the ice breaks beneath him <gasps> and his body plunges straight into the water. As he begins to sink, it feels like he's descending into the blackness of space. Oh, shit. And that's when he finally sees the truth of the universe. He surfaces and he tries to crawl out onto the ice, but he keeps on falling back in. He keeps hoping that the, his, his security team will see him and come help him. Ain't no way. No, his body is like seizing up. His muscles are like, you know, freezing. And he shakes off his soaked down jacket, you know, to get rid of some weight. And he tries to throw it onto the ice. And he's hoping that if he spreads the jacket out on the ice to distribute the pressure, it'll allow him to crawl onto it. 
And just then, when, when he only has a little energy left for one last attempt, he manages to crawl onto his down jacket out of the ice hole. And he crawls as far as he can until his whole body is on top of it, and he's crawling carefully ahead. And that's when the flashlights of his security are waving on the shore and shouting. And he stands, and his teeth are chattering, and his legs are shaking. But the cold that he feels is not from the lake water or the icy wind, okay. but from the transmission he had received from outer space. He kept his head down, and from this moment on, in the same way that Ray Diaz feared the sun, Luo Ji had acquired a severe phobia of the stars. Oh. He would never look up. He bowed his head and through chattering teeth said to himself, Wall facer Luo Ji, I am your wall breaker. <gasps> like did he get a met like a, a numbers 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 like message in his eye I like what i'm know. like what did i'm like is that like transmission message whatever the word was the i'm like is that is that metaphorical for like the universe sending you a download like you realizing something or like did trisolaris actually contact him when he was like about to drown what they oh, who knows i'm like uh what i know i know please tell me brett please tell all of us what is it Okay, buckle up. Okay, Allie, Luoji just had this brush with death under the ice, and now we've got a new scene. No! So now Luoji has called on the services of Kent. And we learn it's obviously been some time since Kent has seen Luoji, because Luo makes this comment about kind of how Kent's hair is like starting to betray his age. But it's kind of along the lines of like, well, at least you're going gray and not bald, kind of thing. Like they're just catching up with each other, Lol. basically. Love that. And for the first time, Kent actually kind of looks proud of Luoji. Like he's sensing that Luoji has like finally begun to actually work on his wallfacer plan because something about Luoji just seems different. different, we'll say. Luo's like, Kent, I need to be in a safer place. Luo is like, listen, all this here has been nice, but I don't care about the aesthetics of the place anymore. Safety and security are the most paramount thing above all now. Like it has to be totally secure whatever this new place is and kent is like dr luo an absolutely safe place does not exist we will try to find something that fits your request but comfort will actually need to be completely disregarded as the most secure facilities are underground and luo's like okay fine whatever like disregard my comfort if that's what you need to do but it is best if this secure place is in China. So wherever we are now, we got to go to China. We got to get out Okay. Of here. And Kent lives to serve and he's on it. And right before he leaves the room, Luoji stops him and he's like, Kent, since I'm going to be leaving this place, do me a favor. Will you tell me the name of where we are? I never want to forget being here. <gasps> New scene. Oh, Did you think shit. I was going to tell you the name of the place? Come on. Damn, I didn't know the name of the place was going to be such a secret. Tease, baby. Truly. So now, in a new scene, after another 10-hour flight in a private jet, and like, don't worry, I'll spare you all the details. We're not going to spend three weeks on this private plane again. Luoji finally arrives at his new secure destination. And as soon as he steps out of the armored vehicle, he recognizes where he is. Where do you think? Uh, the UN? Mm. Um... 
McDonald's. Mm. He heard the ice cream machine was broken and he said, fuck, we're not going. Survey there. says. No. Luoji is back in the same underground facility, Civil Air Defense, the place that used to deal with nukes. Remember it had that like entire massive garage of all the cars running and all the agents like screaming over their walkies like before his story even started in this book in the first place? Kind of. <laughs> Remember he thought he was like being interrogated yes. for the, the murder yes. of his girlfriend, yes. but it, he was actually at this like government facility right. like deep underground right, right, right. he's back here okay like it's a real full circle moment because like he hasn't been here for five years but as soon as he sees it he has this kind of like uh, like welcome home kind of feeling and welcoming luo back home as it were new character alert zhang xiang except it's not technically like a full new character alert we just now have the last name of this guy so do you remember when luo thought he was being interrogated for that murder and there was this like young officer but then dasha came into the room also and i was like we don't know this guy's name they just call him zhang i guess because they sag rules said that he had to have a character name or whatever right right that's this guy zhang xiang got it i was hoping it was gonna be getting in a russian but it is not. No more Karen. No more Karen. <laughs> he will be, be back. back soon. Okay, good. I miss him. So that's this guy, Zhang Xiang. Now, Zhang, at this point in the past five years, has been promoted to head of security of this facility. So he's the one showing Luoji around the place. And a lot of renovation has taken place over the past five years. Oh, like it really? No longer, yeah, like Marble? it no longer looks like the abandoned missile facility that it used to be. Like all those slogans that were painted on the wall, all the old posters and imagery, like all of that's gone. It's made completely new. It still feels old and dingy and industrial, but like basically... This place is sparkly brand new with more tech than Luoji has ever seen in one place in his entire life wow. before. All right. So Luoji is shown to his living quarters. And when he gets there, he's surprised to learn that even though the amenities are nowhere near as nice as the house that he just left... His living quarters take up the entirety of the 10th basement floor. So I'm thinking like, not too shabby. You find yourself in like a military complex and you have the entirety of a whole floor just for you to live. I'm like, I'm thinking it's maybe not the same square footage as like all the property that he just left, but like it's probably like semi-comparable kind of thing, like way more space than he knows what to do. It's a loft in downtown LA. In his room floor thing, subfloor penthouse. There's tons of the same upgraded tech. There's aromatherapy in one corner, one of those inversion tables he can hang upside down on just to like let off some steam or whatever. And sad lamps in the ceiling because, you know, you're 10 levels underground. Like you're going to need access to sunlight. Like Jang is like, you want to run this for at least five hours a day or you're going to have a really hard time Damn. being down here. So Luoji takes a day to get settled in, sort of get reacquainted with this space that like oddly is catching him in his feels, maybe honestly even more so than the place he just left. And then the next day, Luoji calls for Ringier. Do you remember him? Yes. That scientist who was helping yes. Fitzroy. I didn't name him because I was like, I'm not sure if this guy's coming back. But Ringier was was the scientist at the Hubble 2 Space Control Center. When they saw the broom to begin and with. And also the one that was telling him about the, the light cone. Yes. So when Ringier arrives, Luoji is like, you were the first person to observe the Trisolarans flight path, right? 
And Ringier like immediately doesn't want to take credit. He's like actually kind of uncomfortable by the insinuation that like he should get all the credit because it's also like, yeah, cool scientific discovery. But also, do you really want to be the person credited for like having the first photographic evidence of the alien civilization that's on its way to destroy you? Like me? Not personally. I don't want to be remembered for that. So he's like, listen, no, not me. I've been issuing statement after statement about this. It was actually Fitzroy who, and then at this point, Luoji interrupts him and he's like, listen, sorry, I don't even know why I said that. I'm just making small talk. I want to ask you something that doesn't have anything to do with that, actually. Like, <laughs> calm down. Luoji says to Rinjir, he's like, I've done some astronomical observations, but nowhere near as in-depth as those that have been done by you or your team, so I need your help with a question that I'm sort of, like, kicking around in my brain. Luoji's like, in a hypothetical scenario, let's just say that besides Earth... And besides Trisolaris, let's say there's another intelligent civilization in our cosmos. If they exist, has the position of Earth in our universe been revealed to them? And Ranger's like, no, you shouldn't have to worry about that. Like, even with our near constant communication at times with Trisolaris, the communication was always done over extremely low frequency wavelengths. So, at most, another civilization would only have a general idea of the direction that those messages came from, not the actual, like, latitude by longitude relatively, you know, in a galaxy of where the planet could be. Mm -hmm. And Ringier's like, for what it's worth, if there is another advanced civilization, the most that they would know know is that somewhere out there in the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy exist two planets about four light years away from each other who are communicating with each other. He's like, even if we were able to communicate with this hypothetical third intelligent civilization, we most likely wouldn't be able to pinpoint their location. And Luoji is like, uh, why? Like, explain that to me. And so Ringier kind of explains it like this. He's like, say you're flying a plane through the Sahara, and as you're flying, a single grain of sand below you screams up, I'm here, I'm here, look down, here I am. And now for the sake of the illustration, imagine Imagine that you were able to hear that grain of sand screaming up to you. I'm here. I'm here. Look down. Here I am. Do you think it's possible to locate which individual grain was the one trying to get your attention from inside the plane? LOL. In the Milky Way galaxy, there are nearly 200 billion stars. We effectively live in an astronomical desert, but instead of grains of sand, we live among billions of stars. And Luo's like, oh, okay. All right. Yep. Yep. That answers it. And Ringier's like, what's it? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Why? Let me in. And Luo kind of ignores the question. And he asks him another one. He's like, Ringier, would it instead be possible to give away the location of a star? Like somehow identify it easily so other civilizations could pinpoint it? Mm. Ringier's like, yeah, actually, you could transmit extremely high frequency electromagnetic waves, harness the power of the star to transmit the information. To put it most simply, you could effectively turn a star into a lighthouse. <laughs> but as we know, technological advancement in this world has been stalled ever since the arrival of the Sophons. So the plan, unfortunately, is only a hypothetical. But Ringier is like, well, yeah, I know the Sophons are like giving us problems and everything, but we 
could do it with tech that we have now. It would just require technical know-how on the part of the other civilization, and that know-how would be greater than anything humanity and the Trisolarans have combined. So basically, the plan would be this. Luoji and NASA would identify a star to betray its coordinates. They would harness that star's energy to physically be what broadcasts their message. Like, remember, Ye Wenji did this exact same thing. Yeah. It's how she answered, do not answer, do not answer, do not answer. Would they do it with their own son? Well, then this unnamed, still, hypothetical third advanced civilization would be able to cross-reference the message that they received against a map of the stars and then be able to pinpoint which star in the galaxy sent the message. Right. Now, we've already established how hard it would be to pinpoint a single star out of 200 billion in our galaxy. But the sand desert analogy that Ringier laid out for Luoji doesn't quite do it justice because while the numbers do roughly match... The desert is relatively static. Our solar system, our galaxy, even the entire observable universe is always in motion. So if we send a message and it was received, but let's just say for the sake of this illustration that the message was received like a couple days too late or something. By the time whoever received it figured out where the message had come from, and by the time they arrived at that star's location, the location would be out of date. Mm. The star would now be somewhere else, and a grave error in transmission would have occurred. Okay. Ringier's like, Luo, we don't have the capability to send the information of a star's location relative to every other star in the universe. Right. But we could pair it back and make the data set more manageable, make it a little less detailed and a little more accessible. And Luo's like, Okay, get to work. Like, do whatever. Pull out your TI-83, genius. Like, let's get to work. Like, they're they're still coming. And so, Ringier does some maths. He runs off to, like, you know, do his calculations and, you know, make some models of things. And he figures out that if they send a star's location out into space, they would need to include its relative position with just 30 of its closest star neighbors. So, like, 30 is a lot more manageable data set than 200 billion. So, Ringier leaves to go actually work out this problem and pick a star that's not too far from the Earth, not too close, but like just right. And meanwhile, Luo and Kent strike up a conversation. Kent is like, Luo, you're not going to have to wait very long to get this meeting approved. The PDC is meeting like every day now. Like everything is top priority. They're going to get you approval in no time. And Luo's like, Kent, I do have another request to make. Actually, no, I shouldn't say request. It's more of a demand. I'm not going to PDC meetings. Can you set up a Zoom? No way. Kent is like, sir, this is unprecedented. They literally just mandated that Wallfacer's presence is mandatory at all PDC meetings. Like, what are you talking about? You can't zoom into an international meeting? Like, what are you thinking? And Luo's like, Kent, I want you to listen to me. I am in danger. I'm not leaving this place. Like, what part of what I've been telling you over the past couple of days are you not, like, getting into your skull? I'm not going anywhere. Make it work. Make it work. He's also like, if I'm in as much danger as I think I am, there's no way I'm taking that to fall down onto every member of the PDC. That would be so irresponsible. So Kent senses that Luo is, like, obviously, like, one of the most anxious people on the planet, just by nature, but he's, like, really kind of, like, on edge about this topic. So Kent reassures Luo that he's in the safest of hands, that like, you know, nothing can really happen to him because of all the security that's been installed at this underground base. And Luo's like, whatever, I have to go take a walk just to like get out of here for a second. So he walks down a hallway and he's daydreaming about the Garden of Eden 
and not from the Bible. Like, that's a name from the book that we learn. Luoji calls his old place, the house by the lake at the base of the mountains, he calls that the Garden of Eden. And it's funny to note, the narrator tells us that by this point, Luo knows the name of that former place, but the narrator doesn't tell it to us. Ugh. So for now, that house, the old place, is just the Garden of Eden. Okay, damn. So he's daydreaming about the life that he just left behind, and he's realizing he's probably truly about to spend the rest of his life underground because he's afraid to go out in public. He's back in his room at this point, and he looks up at the sad lamps, and he thinks to himself, <laughs> these are nothing like the sun. <laughs> So now we go to some other planet in space, baby. Not Trisolaris? Not Trisolaris. No fucking way. All we can see are two asteroids that are moving in tandem across the backdrop of the star field of all that is in space. A sudden collection of whispers sounds through the darkness. And although we're not aware of who or what are actively whispering, it's almost like the voices are those of invisible space creatures that are just floating in the void. Oh, interesting. Interdimensional, maybe. A tiny flame appears in the darkness, and we become aware of three faces responsible for the whispers that we've just heard. We meet Little Blast from the Past, Chen Shi Huang, Aristotle, and Von Neumann. Welcome back to the digital world of the three-body game. Oh, got it. You got me there. I thought we were on another planet. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, we are, just not physically. We see the source of this little flame that's popped into existence, and like very anachronistically, which we've come to accept at this point, Aristotle is holding a Zippo lighter <laughs> to give them light to see in their space. And he holds the lighter out, he lights a few torches, and then we see other people's faces begin to light up. The group that we found ourselves in contains people from every era of human history, and they all continued to whisper. They've all been given a new order. Chen Shi Huang jumps up on top of a rock and bangs his sword to get everyone's attention. The Lord has commanded that we assassinate Luo Ji. Someone from the crowd is like, again? Haven't we tried this like twice already? Plus, how are we even going to get to him when he's 200 meters below ground? In all the years that we've tried to get to him, have we ever been successful at infiltrating the security around him? Is getting to him now even possible? Someone else screams out there like, cut the crap. Just tell the Lord to give us the truth. Maybe we can come up with a better plan when we know why they want him killed. Right. Chin Shi Wong addresses this faceless unnamed person screaming from the crowd and he's like i asked for the truth they told the truth to evans but that's only because they thought all of humanity already knew the truth when they learned that that wasn't the case they decided to guard it it's the greatest secret in existence no the hype up is big someone else screams out have the lord transfer technology to us chen chi huang was like yeah, I asked for that too. They didn't actually reject it outright at first, but then when they learned what my target was, they were basically like, get real, babe. Something about the tech being ineffective or something. I don't know. So von Neumann, at this point, feeling kind of inferior, is like, is Luoji really that important? You expect me to believe that? And we learn here that von Neumann, in real life, is the first wall breaker. And he is jealous because it's like, how is this wall facer getting more attention than any of the wall breakers, 
any of the ETO, like we're on the same side. What the fuck? Why is it Luo Ji? Why is he so important all of a sudden? Chen Shi Huang repeats, the Lord is afraid of Luo Ji. Einstein at this point pipes up from the crowd and he's like, yes, I thought about this. I think I know why the Lord is afraid of him. He is the mouthpiece of certain power. Certain power? And it's like, Luo Ji is the mouthpiece of certain power? Okay, uh, go on, oh, Einstein. Do tell. But Chen Shi Huang senses that the group is kind of like getting out of control and definitely away from like the meeting points that he's, you know, come to this meeting in mind with. So he bangs his sword on the rock again. And to the crowd, he screams something to the effect of like, can we please cut the shit and start coming up with solutions on how to get to this guy? For fuck's sake, like we're inside a fucking video game right now. Can we get to work? <laughs> Someone in the crowd is like, it can't be done. It really can't. This mission cannot be completed. Another sword bang. At this point, Chen Chi Huang has had it, mama. This mission is crucial. The Lord may really be under threat. Besides, if we complete this mission, the organization will be elevated in the Lord's eyes. Here among us are the world's elite from every sphere. Why can none of us think of a way to get to Luo Ji? We have got to get started. One by one, the torches began to extinguish, and the darkness slowly crept back in, but the whispers kept going. It's a new scene. New scene. New scene. New scene. Today, there's another PDC meeting, but it's been two full weeks since the last one. Luo Ji, for what it's worth, as it relates to the PDC meeting, got his wish. So Kent had set up this entire Zoom station for him to be able to just like sit down and beam himself into the PDC meeting without having to leave this bunker. Right. And while they wait for the meeting to start, Luo Ji's like, Kent, you sound terrible. Are you sick? What's wrong with you? Kent, at this moment, has this new virus that's been going around. No. It's called bed flu. Sniffy Kent over here and Luo Ji, who's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are still, you know, in front of the Zoom waiting for this meeting to start. And the members of the PDC start filing in to the on-screen auditorium back at UN headquarters. And they take their seats to begin the meeting. And the chairman of the PDC updates Luo about some new procedural stuff that just got passed. The PDC now has even more power than before to examine and scrutinize the Wallfacers' plans. And the PDC has given themselves greater veto power when it comes to allocating resources for any given plan submitted by a wall facer. And the chairman is like, Mr. Luo, I'm sorry to say the resources that will be at your disposal are going to be very extremely limited. And Luo is like, my plan requires practically zero resources. And the chair kind of rolls his eyes. He's like, mm-hmm, I've heard this before. And then like the room breaks out into laughter because like, you know, we've just seen how much money Luoji has wasted the past five Yeah, never forget years. that bottle of wine. So Luoji and Ringier, who has joined him now, present the newest version of his wallfacer strategy, and it's effectively this. Using radio wave magnification of the sun, Luoji plans to send a message into the cosmos that contains three very simple image graphics. One, a picture of Janet Jackson's boob at the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, okay. Two, the bored ape meme. And then lastly, but not least, Richard Nixon's penis. I mean, you understand why. So... 
they're like, we're going to send these three very simple image graphics. And with these images, we'll include additional information to show that the images were created by an intelligent race versus something that just maybe occurred naturally in the cosmos. So then at this point on screen, everybody in the PDC conference hall starts flipping through their briefs that they've been given to see the specifics of this plan that he's telling them. And the images are really simple. They're just a series of black dots that are just kind of like seemingly scattered, you know, within like their borders. I'm imagining like a QR code. Not, no. They each have a dot that is like conspicuously much larger than the other ones. So I guess, you know, if you have science and you have math and you're an advanced species, you could, you know, start to think along lines that would help you decode whatever the messages contained in it's these also giving form. morse code like if a big dot is like the equivalent of like a dash yeah like some kind of pictographic representation of like language something not unlike binary yeah or something Anywho. so then at this point the u.s representative is like cute that you figured out what qr codes are but like the Trisolarans are on their way. Like, how is this supposed to help us? And Luoji is like, members of the PDC, you're looking at a spell. Double, double, toil, travel, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. Like, at this point, <laughs> the room erupts into, like, everybody just clamoring for a chance to, like, get to ask Luoji a question. Imagine, like, the press secretary comes out and tells everybody on the planet that, like, aliens are UFOs are landing this afternoon and they're going to give a speech on the lawn of the White House. Like, everybody would lose their fucking mind. So they're like, wait a second. Our last best wall facer candidate is going to cast a spell into space? Which is mummy. How is this going to help anybody? <laughs> Root of hemlock, dickety dock, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of you, slivered in the moon's eclipse. Nose of Turk and tartar lips. Finger of birth strangled babe. Ditch delivered by a drabe. Make the gruel thick and slab. And there too, a tiger's chaldron. For the ingredients of our cauldron. Try Solaris, be our friend. We will have a friendship again. And that was... What was that about dicks delivered in... <laughs> Listen, don't ask me. Shakespeare wrote it. <laughs> wow. Wow, Shakespeare. <laughs> so then someone else gets a chance and they're like, what is this a spell against? And in response, Luoji identifies their target. It's the planets around a Jupiter-sized star that is called 187J3X1. Luoji's like... This spell could work on the star itself, too, but we'll just have to wait to the see. fuck? And someone else asks, Luoji, what does this spell do? And Luoji's like, well, again, we'll have to wait and see, but I can promise you that the result of this spell will be catastrophic. Oh! Someone else is like, okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, is there any life on any of these planets surrounding this star? And Luoji and Dr. Rinji are kind of like, look at each other and then back at the screen. And they're like, not according to our observations. May we be right. 
So, like, whatever they're about to do, if there's life on these planets, like, they're about to completely fuck it up, potentially. So then they lay out the remainder of their plan. This star system that they're targeting is about 50 light years from Earth. So the spell will be complete in about 50 years. Because remember, they're using the sun to send the message. So this message is moving at the speed of light. So it's 50 light years away. That means it takes 50 Earth years for the message to get there. But because it's 50 light years away, that also means for us to be able to see whether or not the spell worked, it's going to take another 50 50 years years for that light to come back to Earth for us to be able to make an observation. So Luoji is like, no observable effect is going to be seen for about 100 years, like give or take. I mean... It's within the timeline, so I can't complain, but... Anything good worth having is worth waiting for, I guess? Except for in and out Move it along! (laughs) Just kidding. I wait a long time for in and out And you know what? They keep that line moving. So now, at this point, the room kind of splits between open, just like blind support for Luoji's plan, and then also, like, on the other side, utter disdain for what he's just said that he's planning to do. The chair of this meeting, of the PDC, trying to, like, get everybody back in line and, you know, get them back on the rails, bangs the gavel and is like, Luo, bro, why don't you just target Trisolaris with this spell? Like, why are we wasting time testing on some, like, other star system? And Luo's like, well, that's because we have to test the plan first. Like, the technique is actually a tactic to be used at the Doomsday Battle. Plus, Trisolaris is too close to the Earth, so the effects of the spell could also potentially negatively affect us here. We don't want that. What the fuck is Luoji talking about? So the chair asks... One final question. Are you just going to like waste all of our resources now that you've told us like you don't have anything else to do for the next hundred years? And Luo is like, ah, Mr. Chairman, don't worry about any of that. You'll be free of me, I promise. I'm going into hibernation. Wake me up only when the effects of the spell are starting to be seen. Wait, I have chills. What do you think this spell is about? I have absolutely not a goddamn clue. Like, like... Uh, um, okay, like, let me think. You're sending, you're sending a message to a star system. I mean, thinking about Luo, no, thinking about Ye Wenji's, like, axioms and, like, whatever epiphany he had when he fell through the ice. Mm -hmm. I'm just guessing here, like, maybe, in fact, there are civilizations on other planets and it's actually going to be an intergalactic showdown and like it's a message that's gonna like cause a response from like they're gonna receive a response from like another star system that they didn't realize also contains intelligent life could be i don't know that's my best guess yeah, I, it's. I think Cixin Lu does such a good job. I think of like not betraying yet, like really why it's such a big deal. And like for me on first read, like this is one of the most I think captivating sort of like concepts that I'd come across. I think so far in this book series, it's definitely also like the most fantastical seeming. Though knowing this book, I'm sure it's hard science behind what this quote unquote spell actually is. But yeah. Was giving fantasy. Wake me up when the plan is done. So now we have a new scene. 
and we have come to the final scene of today's episode. Do you remember like a couple of scenes ago, Luoji is like, Kent, are you okay? Like, are you sick? Like, what's going on with you? Like, Kent is like, obviously physically bed flu. ill. Yeah, it's like bed flu, bird flu. Ah, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So Kent obviously wasn't wearing a mask or social distancing. So now Luoji has COVID too. Got it. Also, I did kind of think it was like pretty ironic that nobody's wearing a mask, like ways that like probably it would be prevented in the real world or just like ignored or like don't exist in the book. So I thought that was kind of funny. I was like for him to be going to all these lengths of like being safe or whatever, just kind of seemed funny for everybody else who is experiencing this bad flu up to this point, the symptoms have been pretty mild. And like usually in a couple of days, it's like they were never sick to begin with. But when Luoji got it, he only kept getting sicker and sicker <gasps> as the days go by. And oh, I'm thinking no. like, oh no, like his immune system is already probably compromised from like, you know, thermal shock falling into a fucking frozen lake. Right. I'm thinking wall breaker. I'm thinking ETO. Like, what if the ETO was like, okay, how are we going to get to him? How Because they had that meeting, you know, like, can nobody here fucking think of a way to kill Luoji? And it's like, well, what if we got him Interesting. Sick? Pen that for a second. Meanwhile, okay. Luoji's doctors are like starting to get very, very worried because like everything that they're trying, antibiotics, steroid, fluid drip, like nothing seems to be making him like any better. And so then ultimately they call in a doctor, a specialist to take a blood sample so that they can start running tests for like any other thing that could be happening. And Luoji, his fever is super high. He's really, really sick. And like, he's having hallucinations. And Luoji, like while he's laying in this hospital bed is witnessing to date some of the most horrific things that he has physically seen in his entire life. He's seeing all these kind of like fantastical images of like every star in the universe swirling around like they're beads rolling on a plate. Like there's no center holding the cosmos together. Everything's just sort of like rolling around at will almost. Mm, This is like in his fever dream. Yeah. And then eventually these stars that he's hallucinating, they start to cluster together to form this enormous vortex. So now think like tornado of every galaxy swirling in the cosmos. And then that vortex transformed into the body of a giant serpent, which the book says, quote, drilled into his brain with a roar. So I'm like, oh, "Oh, no, his blood is infected. I'm like, no, he's in like a bad, bad spot right now. Now, doctors are all still doing their thing. Luoji is just like kind of quietly dying on his hospital bed. And at four in the morning, Zhang Xiang, remember he's the guard that we met originally with Dasha. We only like just learned his last name. Little guard baby from earlier. Now he's the head of security. He gets a call from the PDC and the voice on the line is demanding an update on the health of Luoji. And this voice informs Zhang that the team from the PDC was now coming to investigate. The base had been ordered into a state of lockdown. Fuck. As soon as Zhang hung up the phone, another call came in. This time, it was Luoji's doctor down on floor minus 10 calling up with some updates. God. His condition had deteriorated and he was going into shock. Mm-mm. Zhang hung up the phone, <gasps> ran, and no. got there as quickly as he could. And what he saw was Luoji with a pale face, purple lips, and no signs of life. Is 
gonna die. The team coming to investigate arrives at this point. And when I tell you, it is the CDC, it is the PLA, the PDC, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA. I mean, like literally pick any three letters from the alphabet and they sent a delegation to come and investigate what's happening with Luoji right now. Someone pulls Zhang to the side and he's like, Bro, we've been seeing this virus for a while, but I think I know what's going on with it now. It seems like we're looking at a genetic weapon of some kind. More no. appropriately, a genetic guided missile. No, 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 which, no, I'm gonna throw up. A genetic weapon, as this person telling Zhang, is in the sense basically a virus that has been so thoroughly designed that it will only truly affect a singular person or a singular group of people. Like, everybody around them might get sick. They might have, like, a sniffle or, like, some kind of a symptom, but it won't affect them if their genome is not the target that the virus was designed to go after. I called it. Damn. Okay, like, I could understand that on, like, a conceptual level. Like, if you're designing a virus, like, all you need to start with, and you want it to be, like, a genetic missile virus, like, what you just need, like, the like a piece of DNA from the person you're targeting, yep. and then, like, I don't know, bada boom, bada bing, you push some buttons, crisper, snip, snip, and you got yourself a genetic virus. I mean, literally, what's scarier than, like, chemical warfare is, like, genomic warfare. No, truly. Creepy. Okay. I hope this book isn't, well, anyway. So at this point, Zhang, the head of security, bows his head, and he's like, I take full responsibility for what is happening. This is all my fault. But a colonel speaks up and is like, Zhang, don't be insane. There's no way you could have avoided this. I mean, you all could have been wearing masks. Like, you didn't have to catch it. But, like, we've known about the capability to use genetic weapons. It's just that nobody's ever done it before. And none of us caught it. Like, we are the world's intelligence agencies gathered here, and we all missed it. So, like, it's not your fault, singularly. But Zhang is like, no, I insist. It is all my fault. And he covers his face. He's so ashamed. He's like, if Dasho were here, this would not have happened. Right before he went into hibernation, he told me I need to sleep with one eye open. I think I understand now. And then Kent pipes up and he's like, okay, this is a great pity party and all. Like, so fun. Thanks for the invite. Um, What do we do now, though? Like, is Luoji going to die? And Luoji's doctor gives some grave news. Grave news? In sleep he sang to me. The virus now had penetrated into Luoji's liver and cardiopulmonary systems. No. All his organs were failing. No. Medicine is failing. No. Collectively, they make the decision to hibernate him as soon as possible, even though he's still sick. After a little while, Luoji starts to raise out of the coma that he'd been in, and like his senses are kind of coming back to him, but slowly and not for like long periods of time. He's sort of like blinking in and out of consciousness kind of thing. And he notices that he's freezing, and he sees a bright white light off in the distance. No! <gasps> He's dying. In the center of this light at the end of the tunnel, Luoji sees his wife, Yan Yan, <gasps> holding uh, their baby, Shasha, and he walks no, toward no. them. No, no. I'm going to cry. Luoji finds himself in a hallucination, or honestly, it's not really clear. Like, maybe these are his final moments. But he's in a snowy wilderness so large that it lacks dimension. 
Yan Yan is dressed exactly the same way she was years ago, the first night he ever laid eyes on her. Sha Sha is waving at him from her mother's arms and she's shouting something to him, but he can't hear what she's saying. He tries to chase after them, but they disappeared, like snowflakes melting in the sunrise. Then Luoji disappeared. The white, snowy world compressed into a thin silver line which in this moment kind of represents like how barely he's hanging on to life still he could feel his soul hanging onto this thread sliding at a breakneck speed towards an unknowable future the chapter ends with the following two days later a stream of high power radio waves was sent from the earth toward the sun penetrating the convection zone and reaching the energy mirror in the radiation zone, where its reflection, magnified hundreds of millions of times, carried Wallfacer Luoji's spell into the cosmos at the speed of light. And that is the end of the chapter. No! Sorry for the cliffhangers. I'm dying. Well, Luo G is dying, but and could be dead. Do you think he's dead? <sighs> kind of, yeah, actually. Because like, like that would be interesting. He kind of did what he had to do. He did and what now he had to do. Someone else can carry forward his. Plan. But then I'm also like, like, damn, like your your wife and your baby aren't dead. Like he's seeing them in the light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm like, they're not dead. They're just in hibernation. So like they're going to be really disappointed when I'm like, is the PDC going to keep them on ice for the next 400 years? Or are they going to just like wake them up now if Luoji has died? You know, like what? I'm like, ugh, what do they do? Right. For like the funeral. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. You'll have to wait till next week to find out. As I know. Where I. are we going next week? Because we're starting a new chapter so next week the title of the chapter is year 12 crisis era so we're jumping ahead another four years all right and i don't know i don't know what else in the meantime if you enjoyed today's episode leave us a review and tell a friend about us it helps more than you know if you're on spotify swipe up now to leave a review period if you haven't joined us on patreon obviously we'd love to see you there as well patreon.com slash radar peak and ali before we go do you have anything else for us you're gonna play us out i'm gonna play us out thrice and once the hedge pig whined hopper cries tis time tis time round about the cauldron go in the poisoned entrails throw toad that under cold stone Days and nights has thirty wone. Swelter venom sleeping gut. Boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double, toil, trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. I'm Brett. I'm Allie. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to season two of Radar Peak, a three-body podcast. Subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts or wherever you pod so you never miss an episode. For exclusive members-only content, subscribe to our Patreon. Oh, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review and tell your friends about us. Join in on the conversation when you follow us on social media at Radar Peak Pod. See you there.